Father in heaven, we recognize that you created us in your image, and that was shattered when we rebelled against you. We've just sung of that hell-bent race that we were on as we rebelled against you, as we fought against you, as we made ourselves enemies of the living God that created us. Without Christ, we were hopeless. We thank you, though, that you saw fit to send your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that redeemed us, that restored that image and And Father, we thank You for calling us as Your own, making us heirs in Christ, co-heirs with Him, adopted sons and daughters as members of Your kingdom. Father, as we we come before Your Word today, I, I pray that You would teach us as we explore the wonderful truths that we find here. As we dive into some theology, I pray that You would teach us about ourselves, that You would teach us about You, that we would have a greater appreciation of your grace and who you've called us to be as a result of encountering you here today. And so I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit as, you, as I speak these words, as I take people to your word, as we examine the truths that are here. I pray that you would fill each one here with your word, with your spirit as we, Lord, as we um, walk in obedience to you. Please guide us in this time we pray. Amen. You know, oftentimes when we're reading through the Gospels and we come across Peter, uh, we, we come across some statements and some things that Peter said every once in a while. Have you ever been reading through the Gospel of John or Matthew and, and you come to Peter and he just blurts something out and you just kind of snicker to yourself and go, <laughs> yeah, stuck his foot in his mouth again, right? We all have a tendency to do that sometimes and men, probably one of the, the places we stick our foot in our mouth the most is, is with our wives, isn't it? As I, as I think back over many years of, of our marriage, 26 years we've been married almost now, there have been a lot of foolish remarks that I've made towards my wife, times that I just went, oof, what, what was I thinking? But uh, you know, God who gave me my wife over 26 years ago, uh, as, I, as I think of some of those remarks I made, my mind goes to one particular very thoughtless dialogue that I had taken part in. Now, for those of you that know my wife at all, uh, you know that she, she has a few hobbies. Uh, she loves music. She, she loves to crochet. And, and she's, a, she's a master at her craft. I, I love watching her work. And, and I love seeing the, the finished product. It's just, it's, there's, some, there's just beauty to it. And so whether it's afghans, baby toys, Christmas decorations, uh, you know, she's an artist. And, and my wife loves teacups. It's uh, one of her, her collections, that her, her hobbies that she's had for many years. In particular, she collects teacups from a very specific era of, of history. She, she collects teacups from occupied Japan. And they come from this very particular era. They have unique qualities, which she enjoys and she knows. Uh, she can look at something and, and says, I think that is. And she looks at the bottom and sure enough, it has the markings. And, and with that collection, though, uh, she found this painting a while back, several years ago, and, and this painting went up on our wall. And it's a, it's a um, beautiful pinkish painting of a, an unknown woman dressed in Victorian attire, and, and uh, it, it decorates the wall, and it's usually near her teacup collection, and it kind of, it just complements it and goes with it. Well, several years ago, upon a visit in which my parents had come down to our home in Texas, uh, my father was sitting in the room with me, 
and he looked up at this painting and, and he turned to me and he, he asked just randomly, what, what's the story behind this painting? Who, who is this woman? Now, I don't remember why I would have been in a particularly foul mood. I don't know why I would have decided that at that moment that this was an opportunity to make a pathetic attempt at humor and sarcasm. But I remember looking up at the picture and I looked at my dad and I remember saying, Dad, sometimes in this life and sometimes in marriage, it's just best to realize that there's, there's always going to be something that we don't understand and we should just keep our opinions to ourselves. I have no idea where Angie found this picture and why it's on our wall. <laughs> yeah, right? It was a completely <laughs> foolish thing to say. It was cruel. It was mean. It was a joke at my wife's expense. It was even worse when I realized that my wife was sitting right on the other side of the half wall hearing the entire conversation. And it was moments later that I realized that she was there. And, and it, it just, if I just had taken five seconds, whether she was there or not, to think before I spoke, my, my words were hurtful. They were thoughtless. I had, I had taken advantage of the woman that I love by making her the object of a sarcastic and cruel joke. But perhaps the most hurtful part of the foolish moment was that I had verbalized my unwillingness to know my wife and the things that she enjoys. I had demonstrated a lack of concern for understanding her, for understanding the things that she enjoys, the things that she appreciates and finds beautiful. And my failure embodied the error that, that, that men know nothing about women and therefore the effort to know our wife is not worth the time and the energy that it takes to put into it. What a horrible lie, isn't it? I, I couldn't have been more wrong. I share this story with you, not because I take pleasure in remembering or broadcasting my own failures as a husband, and I want you to understand it was men. Learn, learn from my example and do as I didn't. Uh, but, but I share this because I believe that this type of foolishness also demonstrates something that we all do sometimes and, and in an even more vital relationship that you and I have. And, and this is the relationship that we have with God our Creator. You see, in our human relationships, we often, take, we, we often make the great mistake of neglecting our duty to understand the people that we love, the people that God's put into our lives, especially our spouses. And, and, and what, what makes them tick? What do they enjoy? Who, who are they really? And how does my relationship with them need to grow? And where do I need to change so that I can love this person that God has put into my life and I can adore them with more affection and earnestness than I ever have before. But I'm afraid that in that same way, in our relationship with the one true God, you and I, we oftentimes make the fundamental error in which we neglect our duty. 
our privilege, our honor of understanding Him, of knowing Him, of looking at each day and go, I want to know Him more today than I did yesterday, and to walk with Him and, and have this relationship with which I just understand better what makes my God tick because I love Him so much and I want to adore Him. We know that He's beyond us, right? He's the creator of the universe. There are things that we are never going to understand about God. He is... He's infinite, and so there are some things that we just we can't know. But yet, in the midst of that, he's he's made himself known by revealing himself in his word, and we we know that all the libraries of the world couldn't begin to contain a collection of all there is to know about him, and so so sometimes we just dismiss it. We we hear we hear a word like theology. What's your first reaction when you hear theology doctrine? And we hear that. And unfortunately, sometimes we go to this place in our hearts where we say to ourselves, perhaps it's just best for us to realize that there will always be things that we don't understand and we should keep our opinions to ourselves. I have no idea how to describe God, so I'm just going to leave that to the professionals. And we do that same thing with God that, we did, that I did with my wife, don't we? Well, I'd like to propose to you that there's nothing further from the truth than all this. Theology, what Thomas Aquinas once called the, the queen of the sciences, it, it basically means the study of God. To study, to study God. The one that we love and adore and who gave His own Son to die on the cross for our sins. And, and when we hear the word theology or doctrine and, and, and in our hearts we, when we say those things to ourselves, you know, if we truly love our God like, like we love our spouse or our best friend, then we are going to strive to know Him. To know about Him. To spend time with Him in order to enhance this relationship that we have. We want to strive to understand our own shortcomings. We're going to want to strive to understand our own failures and to learn to overcome. This is just part of loving somebody. And if you truly love God, then you're going to strive to know Him, to know about Him, and to spend time with Him as you draw ever closer to Him in your relationship with your Creator. Well, theology, it's not just for pastors. It's not just for seminary professors. Now, um, it, it, I believe that it should be the joy of every believer to just consider, to just dwell on how great our God is. We should just take time occasionally just to ponder His beauty. And it should bring us incredible joy to, dis to discover how He describes us and, and to understand our relationship with Him and, and how that can flourish. Uh, to reiterate this, just listen to some of the words of the psalmist. In Psalm 66, the, the choir master saying, Shout for joy, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are Your deeds! So great is Your power that Your enemies come cringing to You. All the earth worships You and sings praises to You and sings praises to Your name. Come and see what God has done. He's awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that that would be the cry of my heart. Again, in Psalm 150, he says, Praise the Lord. 
praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Doesn't that describe the God that you love? His excellent greatness. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we praise Him for His mighty deeds if you and I don't take the time to think about them? And how can we praise Him according to His excellent greatness if you and I have not exerted enough energy to just consider the ways in which He is excellent? Theology is important. And every one of us should strive to be better theologians. I, I remember we had a, a history professor at Moody Bible Institute that came and uh, every once in a while our, our floor in our dormitory, we'd invite one of the professors up and just have a impromptu chat session, ask questions. And, and he was asking some questions of us that day, and he asked some doctrinal, theological questions. And I remember one of the guys on my floor, he says, oh, he says, I'm not the guy that you should be asking that theological question. You, sh you should ask Terry over here. He's the theologian on the floor. And, and remember Dr. Quiggle saying, you only have one of them? We should all be theologians. Now, now God does not ask every single one of us to be a scholar. And he does not command each one of us to delve into philosophical arguments and, and all the theological isms, but he does desire for us to grow in our relationship with him. And that does mean that we need to strive to learn about him, that we need to spend time with him. It does mean that we must strive to better understand ourselves and what God says about us and, and what he says about our sin and what he says about redemption and how he redeems us from the shattered image which took place at the fall. Over the period of several years, it's my desire to preach a series of different sermons in what I call our We Believe sermons. Uh, we, don't, we don't spend a lot of time on these because we primarily take a text of the Scripture and we let it unfold and discover a, a book of the Bible as God, God reveals Himself and reveals what He says about us in those passages. But every once in a while, we take a, a, a break and we, we take a few weeks to focus on one of our We Believe series. And uh, today we're going to start our fifth out of nine of these series that we've been doing over the last five or six years, um, usually one a year. And... Um, and this next month, we're going to explore that fifth of nine series. In particular, we're, we're going to examine what we believe and teach about the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. Um, we want to take a few weeks to understand and better understand the things that our church believes about, about God, about these orthodox truths that he's revealed in his word. And, and really, my hope is, because I, I know there's, there's still part of some of you that's going, oh, theology series, ah, I, I, this is going to be really deep and really heavy, and I don't know if I can handle that. And my, my goal is that we would take some of the scary out of theology, and, and that we would uh, take some of the intimidation factor that makes our hearts skip a beat when we hear the word doctrine, and, and we would just see the practical aspects of, of what we say we believe and why we believe it, and then how that's incredibly applicable to each one of our lives. And so we're going to be focusing on this doctrine of sin and, and the doctrine of man and what does God say about these things. Most importantly, it's not just what, what do we think we believe and, and we reason in our heads that we believe it, but what does God's Word say? And, and how does it teach us what it does that leads us to say, I believe this? And so if you look with me at um, some of the doctrine we have the opportunity to discover over this next few weeks, 
I'm going to read from our doctrinal statement. This is the third paragraph in our statement of faith. It says this, We believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under His wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. So that's where we're going to springboard out of that. That's what we say we believe as a church. Uh, and that's not going to be the text of what I preached, but we're just going to springboard out of some of these statements to then look at what does the Bible say about that and why do we actually believe those things. Uh, this third paragraph of our statement of faith, otherwise known as our church's doctrinal statement, uh, some of the words here, they might seem unfamiliar or again, very theological and scholastic. But, but it's important we understand that these words were carefully chosen for what they communicate. And I believe it's good for us to unpack the meaning which lies behind those words. And again, most importantly, it's, it's good for us to discover how God's Word teaches these things. And today we're going to examine how the Scripture describes just that first statement, God created Adam and Eve in His image. And we're going to stop right there today. And, and so... Um, we, we, what better place to discover these truths about the human race and where we all started than the very first passage of Scripture? If you would turn to Genesis chapter 1 with me. There in the first chapter of the Bible, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taught us about God our Creator, and he taught us about God creating us. And if you jump to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. As we consider this concept of God creating mankind in His image, I'd like to draw out three points today. First, the Scripture makes it abundantly clear. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, any, uh, there, there shouldn't be any controversy here if, if we believe that the Scripture means what it says. It makes it abundantly clear that God created us. Period. Moses and the Israelites, they lived in a world where, where they were taught differently than that, though. Uh, the Israelites uh, coming out of Egypt, they were taught that there were many gods. And sometimes those gods argued with one another. Sometimes those gods fought. Uh, oftentimes those gods made mistakes. Sometimes they made decisions that were contrary to one another. And sometimes they would do something to upset the other ones. And one of those mistakes that, that they were taught about in Egypt in their theology was that those gods had created man and man was a mistake. They, they goofed. They, um, some of the cultures around them taught that the, that the gods had created man and they created men so that we could do the work for them and then we could feed those gods and, and do all the things that they didn't want to do anymore. They just wanted to party and have fun and so they'd create men so that they didn't have to do all those things. And so yay, we get to labor and do all, all the hard stuff. But then after they created us, the guys went, wow, these creatures are noisy. We made a mistake. And that's the things that, that they were taught when Moses and the Israelites came out of Egypt. Specifically in Egypt, they had been taught that man was created when one of the gods wandered off. 
and, and man was made in an error, and there were some tears that were shed, and when those tears fell to the ground, poof, you know, man came out of it. Uh, those are the stories that they grew up with. It's not too different from what our children are taught, though, in the American school system today, is it? Man is a mistake. Isn't that what we teach our kids in our culture today? Man's a mistake. A cosmic accident. With all of our expertise in science and with all the knowledge that we've accumulated in the 21st century, the experts have determined that the existence of man is just the result of trillions of years of random chance and accident and that your life and my life and the life of every human being is just random. Give the universe enough time in the perfect set of circumstances and life's going to find a way and things will just fall in place and, and, and here we are. Well, God, what does God, our God say? Listen to His words where He speaks elsewhere. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3. to Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, listen to this, through whom also He created the world. God did it. A few chapters later, Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God did it. He spoke it into existence and it happened. That's how great our God is. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ again, verses 15 and 16, Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And then just a few pages over from where we are in Genesis, in Deuteronomy 4.32, it declares that God created man on the earth. There's also a person named, named Jesus. I, some of you may have heard of this guy before. Anybody here? Some guy named Jesus? Jesus affirmed in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, where he's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. He's teaching the Pharisees. And he says, haven't you guys read? <laughs> read the Bible. What's it say? Haven't you read that, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so Jesus, God himself in human flesh, said, I believe what Genesis 1 says. God created us. You know, it's important that we recognize in our study of man that God created us. Contrary to the myths that were taught in Egypt and Mesopotamia, and contrary to the godless doctrine of our age, the Bible teaches us that God created, He created the human race. It's important that we recognize that not only did He create it, but He did it intentionally. He did it with purpose. He made us, and it wasn't a mistake. You hear that? A lot of us live with this idea that our lives happened by mistake. But we can extend what God says about the creation of man and examine how this really gets close to home. That, that you were not created by accident. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that weren't created by accident, but you were not created by accident. You are not a mistake. God intentionally created you and He made you with a purpose. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139. 
He says to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Listen to the words of Elihu when he spoke to Job in Job chapter 33. Job had four friends that talked to him. The first three, they they gave him some pretty bad advice. But then Elihu comes along, and Elihu actually shared a lot of good advice to Job. And so Elihu, the, the, the godly one of the bunch, he says to Job, he says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Again, Psalm 100, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. And so God created the human race. He created you. None of it was by accident. None of it happened by chance. None of it was a mistake. You've been created with purpose. We also believe, and we believe it because God's taught it in His Word, we believe that God created male and female. And in our key passage in Genesis 1, three times it's stated that God created man in His image. We're going to unpack that here in a few moments. But uh, whatever that phrase means, God makes a special point that the creation of man in God's image, it wasn't just Adam. Now, a lot of us in this world would like to say Adam was created in his image and Eve just has to do everything we tell her to do. That's how the world has typically operated for a long time. But that's not what it says. Adam and Eve, male and female, were both created in the image of God. Again, Jesus quotes this very passage in his teaching to the Pharisees when they're asking him about marriage and divorce. And Jesus himself reaffirms that God created both genders when he made us in his image. Now again, I know and you know that the world teaches something a lot different than that, doesn't it? The world tries to undermine the truth of sound doctrine. And throughout human history, mankind has undermined God's creation by demeaning one gender and elevating another. Uh, usually, women have been suppressed and subjugated. Uh, they've been presented as the slaves to their more superior male counterparts. And that's how human history has typically looked at, at women in, throughout, throughout time. It still happens today. Uh, the, current tr- the current trend is swinging the other way a little bit. Uh, and the, the direction that our world seems to be going right now is to demean the role of men and, and lower uh, males to only being worth keeping around because we have to procreate somehow and men are too willing to just agree to that role um and men and women we we go against one another and we think we're better than the other and and that's not how god created us he didn't create one as superior over the other different roles but but nowhere does it say this one's better than the other Last decade's thrown another grenade into the mix and gender fluidity has become one of the favorite doctrines of our generation Scripture declares that God created us male and female. But the authorities of our world would tell you that you can choose whatever gender you like. And depending on whether you go with the figures that are calculated by the World Health Organization or Facebook in the United Kingdom, uh, their clerics are going to tell you that you can choose anywhere between 5 and 72 different genders. 
I mean, if you're on Facebook in Britain, you can actually decide 72 different gender identities that you can choose from. So many choices, how do I pick? But what does God say? From the beginning, God created us male and female. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 14. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Along with the countless other passages throughout the Old and New Testament, teach us that God created men and God created women to complement one another. And, and while neither gender is superior to the other one, God created us to represent Him as we, fully, as we fulfill different and complementary roles. Allow me, allow me to once, again, just make this very practical and just apply it to us as individuals. Based on what God teaches us about creating male and creating female, about giving us different roles, uh, of not making one superior and better than the other, but that we're supposed to, to com- be combined and, 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 and complement each other, understand that God created each one of us intentionally. He knew every fiber of our being even while we were being knit together in our mother's womb. And and so give Him praise. Give our God praise for who He created you to be. Let us not try to usurp God's sovereignty by falsely trying to override what God teaches us about gender. Let us embrace the value of both the genders that God has gifted to us and let us embrace the value and beauty of both male and female and who He's made you. Both were created in His image and as such are to be celebrated and cherished. And then let us embrace the roles that God has given to us, whether those roles are are uniquely suited to our gender or whether those roles are placed upon us by the circumstances and the gifting that God has orchestrated in your life. One other point. Finally, we believe, and again, because God has taught us, that we are created in His image. You ever struggled with that one? What does that mean? You know, click, click. You took a picture. You know, what are we talking about with an image? The word image is actually the same word that's used elsewhere for idols. You see all these Israelites and people in the ancient world. They they make these little clay figurines and they say, "This is my God," and they put it up on the mantel place. It's the same word here in the text, and, and so it, it it comes from that same. Um, that same imagery, if you will. Um, throughout the centuries, there, there's been a lot of discussions about what does it mean um, to be created in the image of God. Uh, if you go to Bible colleges and seminaries, they're going to talk a lot about the Imago Dei. Um, people write papers all over about it, and there's lots of discussions. about. It's just a Latin phrase that means the image of God, but they make it really fancy, and they talk about it, and they, they reason about it, and and, and there, there are a lot of people who would falsely claim that this, it basically just means that we look like God. Well, what's the Bible say about that? God is spirit. Um, and, and the Bible tells us that God is spirit, and so to say otherwise makes us, basically makes us attempt to shape God in our image. And that's not how it's supposed to work, is it? Greek philosophers, they used to have endless debates about different, the different immaterial parts of us. Obviously, there's a physical part of us, and obviously there are parts of us that aren't physical there, there's something that's different about us that's even after we die there's something there and so what do we call it and so there's the soul and the spirit okay so is the soul and the spirit the same thing can you separate those and the greeks would have endless debates 
about these immaterial parts of man. Uh, throw in the mind, the heart, the emotions, volition. And, and you're going to find that there's a lot of theological circles that really try to define the image of God in those terms. That, that we are like God in these ways. And, and, and certainly, there, there are characteristics where you can draw comparisons to show how, how we are made by Him. And in some ways, we are like Him. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in fact, he's going to develop this, this idea of the image of God later on, in our, and we'll look at some of those passages in, in the next few weeks, uh, about the image of God and what that means for Christians. What does that mean for you to be created in the image of God? And, and that image has been shattered by sin, and what did Jesus do? And, and there's a whole thing that Paul's doing with that uh, that we're going to discover. Um, but before we get to all of that, and without going into all the debates and all the, the philosophy, um, I'd like for us to explore the concepts in, in the, these next few weeks. But right now, I just want us to back up to our passage in Genesis 1, and, and let's look at what that Old Testament audience, when Moses wrote down these words and he edited the book of, of Genesis, and, and, and the people read the book of Genesis as a whole for the first time. And when that group of former slaves that had come out of Egypt, when they heard these words, how did they understand what Moses was saying about the image of God? What, what did that mean to them? And I think there's some answers both in the text and in history. You see, when God says three times in Genesis chapter 1 that we are made in the image and the likeness of God, there was a specific way that I think the Hebrews, just released from bondage in Egypt, they would have understood this concept. It was common uh, in those days for ancient kings to create images of themselves. Did you know that? Ancient kings would make images of themselves. Kind of we do the same thing today, don't we? We go down to Chicago over at Grant Park. There's a giant statue of Abraham Lincoln. How would you feel if I spray painted it? Why? Because it's not him, really. He's been dead. But it represents... It, there's a representation going on there, isn't there? And ancient kings would do the same thing. They would make images of themselves, and they'd use those images in two different ways. One of the ways that they would use them is they would create these images that would be, um, they'd kind of be in a posture of prayer. They'd be showing in, in these little idols, these little statues of themselves, that they were somehow worshiping. And they would put those images inside their temple. Not so that people would worship those images, because they wanted their God to see that image of them and when the person wasn't in the temple, they didn't want the God to forget that, that they respected them. And so they would, they would put these images there on one hand, this likeness of themselves, so that, and they would portray the, the king showing gratitude as well as a plea for supplication. In other words, the image served as his representative while he wasn't there. And the other way that the kings would use these images was they would place these little stone replicas and they would put them uh, around their, their kingdom. And, and they would take subjugated tribes and it would be a reminder to that tribe that, that I own you. I, I'm your master. I'm your king. And, and it would remind them, it was a physical reminder of who the king was. And if you spray painted that, that image, it was the same thing as attacking the king himself. If you defaced the image, it was the same thing as assaulting the king, and the penalty was death. And so the image was as good as the king. It represented him. And so in a small way, 
the image acted on behalf of the king. And similarly, God placed man, both male and female, to serve as his representatives. In this case, we're not an inanimate object because God formed us from the earth, but he breathed life into us. He breathed life into this image. Mankind was called to rule on the earth as his representatives. Again, just consider what the text says. Look at Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then look what he does. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that the creeps on the earth. So even in our own context, there's this context of man is representing God here on earth. We're his ambassadors. We are here to rule as his representatives. We were put here to govern God's creation. But there's, there's an even more vivid way that this phrase, the, the image of God, was used in those days. Um, for, for a group of newly released slaves that Moses wrote these words to, um, there was, there was a, a very vivid context that they would have recognized clearly. I, I've seen that phrase before. I've heard that phrase. I know what that phrase means here. So what does it mean here when God talks about me that way? Uh, in Egyptian literature, the most common referent for the image of God was, guess what it was? Anybody want to throw it out there? What was that? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, is that what he said? Oh, turtle. Turtle. It rhymes with Pharaoh if you're not listening really well. <laughs> I wasn't listening very well. Turtle. No, it wasn't turtle, although they had turtles in their theology. Uh, it, it was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the image of God. Anybody hear of a guy named King Tut before? Really popular dude. Got his gold mask, really cool looking. Um, he comes a little bit later than the Exodus, but it's, it's still a really good example of how this phrase was very frequently used among the pharaohs. Do you know what Pharaoh, uh, uh, King Tut's name, full name was? Anybody know it? Tut in common. King Tut in common. Do you know what Tut in common means? It means living image of Amun, their creator God. King Tut was the image of God. And the Israelites heard this all the time. And every time they looked at Pharaoh, who was he? Well, he's God's image. He's God's representative. He's, he's God on earth. And he represents all the gods of heaven. And so you see, in the theology of the ancient world, the king was the living image of the gods. Pharaoh was God's viceroy. He was designated to rule and to govern over men. And if I did something to Pharaoh, then I was... I was doing the same thing to the gods themselves. To assault Pharaoh is to assault the gods. Just like assaulting a statue of Abraham Lincoln would be the same thing as disrespecting Abraham Lincoln and everything he represented. You see, in Egypt, Pharaoh acted as the one who was placed in the land to rule on behalf of the gods. He was made in their image. Now, that's bad theology, right? We don't believe in all the gods of Egypt, right? I see five of you shaking your heads yes. I'm really concerned about the others of you. Do we believe in all these gods of Egypt? No. No, this is bad theology, okay? Um, and God is shaping how He wants His people to understand their role in His community. 
But if you're a newly freed Hebrew slave and you hear the words of Genesis chapter 1 that our God created us, both Adam and Eve, male and female, in His image. And then in Genesis chapter 9, uh, He uses that same terminology regarding capital punishment. He says, you shed blood, you kill somebody, by man your blood shall be shed. Why? Because you are created in the image of God. You take the life of another human being, You've defaced the image. And there's a penalty for that because it's the same thing as defacing and disrespecting the God of heaven. That image is important. You and I, according to Genesis chapter 1, and combine that with Genesis chapter 9, and then we're going to see that elsewhere in the New Testament, you and I are still image bearers today. Marred, shattered, but being redeemed, and, and God is doing something with it, but in some way, even if it's not perfect, you are still a bearer of God's image. So what would that mean for these frayed slaves? Moses? Wait, wait, hold on. Are you telling us that just like Pharaoh used to represent all those Egyptian gods that we were supposed to serve, that all of us have been created to represent Yahweh? Our Creator God? I think Moses would have said, yes. Yes. A resounding yes. My friend, you and I are image bearers. So what what does it mean that you're made in His image? It, It means that God desires for you to live in a way that you passionately pursue a life that is lived out resembling the Maker whom you have been created to represent. The Scripture is in no way telling us that we are created physically to look like God. That's not what it's talking about here. But rather, we are created to act like Him. We are created to imitate Him. We are created to represent Him in everything that we do, in everything that I think, in everything that I say. I'm called to represent the God of heaven who has placed me here as one of His representatives. My friend, the Israelites lived in a world where they were fed all kinds of bad theology. And you and I live in a world where the culture and the experts of your day, they feed you the same thing. But by God's grace and His mercy, He's revealed Himself in His Word, the Bible. And so therefore, we believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image. And so briefly, just consider what are the ramifications of all these things? Both Adam and Eve were created intentionally. They are created with purpose. It wasn't accident and it wasn't chance. And so were you. God created you with purpose and He created you by choice. He decided to make you. Not only this, but God created both male and female in His image. We have different roles. We have different ways that we live out that purpose that God's created for us. But the way that God created you, the gender that God gifted to you, the roles in life that God called you to, all these should be embraced because it is exactly as God intended it. There was no mistake when He made you the way He made you. And Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were created as God's representatives to rule over creation that He placed them in. And that image has been passed down to all men, to all women. And for this reason, life is is valuable. 
Life is sacred. It needs to be held in the highest regard. The unborn child bears the image of God. I saw that was the theme for the, the walk that you're doing this, this next two, week, two Saturdays from now, right? Image bearers. They haven't been born yet, but they are made in God's image. The 99-year-old woman who's suffering from dementia and she can't even recognize her own daughter, doesn't even know who the woman standing in front of her is. That woman, that 99-year-old woman is created in the image of God and she is an image bearer. She is a representative of the God of heaven. And she deserves the dignity to be treated that way. All those to whom God has given life bear His image. And so we need to value life from beginning to end. And you are made to represent Him. So go out. Go out from here today. Go to Sunday, go to Sunday school and fellowship first, okay? We're going to start a new series in the book of Daniel. But after that, go out from here. Speak words that God wants your neighbors to hear. Act in a way that God would act. Live life in a way that you serve Him and you act on His behalf. Father, we thank You for the incredible displays that You've given to us in Scripture that help us to understand who we are and who You are and, and, and how we follow You. What that looks like in our lives, in our daily lives. And Father, it's my prayer that just even as we just consider these, these basic theological beliefs that we say, I believe this, and discover it from Your Word and see how You, you teach that to us, I, I pray that as we go from here that it would change our lives, that, that we would hold on to these truths. And if, and if, if, if we're believing a lie from somewhere else that's telling us we're not valued, that we're not important, that we're not created with purpose, that we're not created in God's image, or that He made a mistake when He made me. I, I pray that we would hold on to the truths You've given to us in Your Word. Might we take comfort here? Might it challenge us to walk in a way that would honor You? And I pray that You would be glorified in our lives today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of your glory, that we pray these things. Amen.